The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see a16z.com disclosures. Hey folks, welcome. Welcome to tonight's episode of The Good Time Show. This is a show that Shriram and I host a couple times a week, every week, and we've been doing this for about nine months now. So with that, Shriram, we have a really special guest or couple guests tonight. Who do we have here? Well, th- thank you, Aditi. So uh, we have a very exciting episode. Uh, and for those of you who want to, you know, uh, you know, uh, thank you so much for the questions, suggestions. People have jumped into the Discord. A uh, lot of excitement. So first up, uh, we have somebody, uh, you know, uh, as we hinted, long-time listener, first-time caller, uh, the one and only Ben Horowitz. Uh, needs no introduction. Uh, you know, uh, apart from uh, Ben is the co-founder of Andreessen Horowitz, uh, uh, you know, the place I happen to work at. Uh, and, you know, I also think in this case, he's been intimately involved with the history of Lyft for many, many years. And uh, we have some fun questions from Ben and to ask Ben today, which should, should be quite entertaining. Uh, but the uh, star of the evening, we're really excited to have uh, John Zimmer. Uh, John is the co-founder and president of Lyft, uh, has been with it since the very beginning. Um, and it's the beginning of, uh, for, for those of you uh, who are not intimately familiar with Silicon Valley, it, it, there's some lots of surprising twists and tales and tribulations that Lyft has overcome to become the force they are today. And we're going to get through it. So we have a really exciting hour or so planned. We're going to get into the founding of Lyft, and it was actually not even called Lyft, uh, uh, all the way to you know their very, very competitive years uh, to, you know, to the future from uh, self-driving cars to the work they are doing in Texas to uh, lots of fun stuff for the future. But uh, can't be more excited. John, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Excited to be here. Now, first off, uh, you know, I think for Silicon Valley insiders, maybe familiar with this, but not maybe folks outside, is Lyft has been around for a long time, but it was not even called Lyft. And it was actually, you know, uh, had a name which is after your own name. So could you talk to us a little about the history of Zimride and how that became Lyft? Because I don't think that's a story which a lot of folks uh, outside tech are super familiar with. Sure. And actually, uh, the fun part that we'll learn is that Zimride was not, even though my last name is Zimmer, my co-founder named it before we knew each other. Uh, so it's another weird twist. But What? Um, hey, I didn't yeah. know this. I thought it was named Yeah. No, no, had, no, 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 no. Zimbabwe. Yeah. What? It, it came from Zimbabwe. What? I did yeah. not know this. Yeah. So uh, Logan, my co-founder, he grew up in L.A. He hates traffic, uh, hated being surrounded by traffic. He... Uh, he started in tech learning from Nolan Bushnell, uh, the guy who invented Atari and Chuck E. Cheese. I don't know which one is more important. Uh, yeah. both, both extremely That's a crazy important. person to learn from, by the way. For those of <laughs> yeah. you who don't know, I mean, this not just a great entrepreneur, but one of the all-time most like insane entrepreneurs of, in the history of Silicon Valley. <laughs> yeah, so per- perfect for Logan uh, and got him really excited about technology entrepreneurship. And then for him, he wanted to solve traffic. So he he went to UC Santa Barbara. He wanted to make an experiment out of not owning a car. Uh, so he would go visit his girlfriend using Craigslist for ride sharing down on weekends. And uh, he started a Zipcar type car sharing program uh, using university vehicles and then kind of making a homebrew kit to uh, open the car with an ID card. And that got the attention of the local transit board. 
and they elected him as the youngest member ever to Santa Barbara County Transit Board. It was him and a bunch of retired folks making multi-million dollar bus budgets, of which he was the only person that actually rode the bus. And he quickly saw that public transportation, the promise of it was fantastic, but the reality was it was dependent on tax revenue uh, to scale. Uh, because the average, what it's called, fare box recovery ratio in the United States is about 30%, meaning if you pay $3 to get on the bus, uh, it costs the government another seven uh, to, to get the trip done. And so he tried to raise taxes. He found out quickly that that wasn't very popular. And so he couldn't scale transportation. He then traveled to Zimbabwe, where he was with a few friends, and he got inspired by their grassroots uh, kind of vans picking each other up along the way, which is what inspired the name Zimride uh, for what, what we built together eventually, which was kind of long distance carpooling. My quick kind of my quick way in 10 seconds, I, I studied hospitality uh, and took a city planning course and started thinking about the city itself as the most important hospitality experience, but that we had built the cities in the US more recently for cars instead of for people. And that that's something I wanted to change. So we teamed up in uh, 2007. Wow, okay, so it, this is fascinating because I remember Zimride, by the way, thank you for that. I think you know a lot of people listening in uh, just had their minds uh, uh about the story of the name. And so it, this was in 2007, and you know, you, I, I think a lot of people who obviously are fans and consumers of Lyft would not have been super familiar with kind of the four or five years you spent uh, with a very different path. So talk to us a little bit about you know, just your history as Zimride and what led to the evolution um, or the creation of Lyft itself. Yeah, so for Zimride, for, for Logan and I, we were, we were just coming out of college. And so we were thinking about all those times we had driven back from college campus, myself from upstate New York to New York City area, and how many other people were going the same way. And we wanted to basically make it easy to sell the seats in your car, but have some sort of identity. Um, because the only other, back then, about a million posts every year on Craigslist around ride sharing, but you would share with you know an anonymous email at Hotmail um, instead of someone with identity that you could give feedback mm -hmm. to. So we added kind of social profiles, made it easy to sell the seat in your, your car on your way home from school. We started selling those private platforms like a, a SaaS business to university campuses and uh, built a small kind of slightly profitable business. Um, but we looked at ourselves five years later in 2012 and said, if we were starting over from scratch, is, is this what we would build to solve the problem we're most excited about? And that problem is that cities are designed around cars and not, not people. And we said, no, we would build, uh, you know, the, the iPhone wasn't around when we started Zimride. Um, and so it completely changed what we thought was possible. And, and so then uh, Uber had done limos and black cars, mm -hmm. uh, I think, a year and a half, two years earlier. Uh, but we didn't think that was very scalable. Uh, we, saw, we thought that was serving you know, 1% of the population, and we wanted to make something way more affordable, way more scalable, that would set the basis for uh, competing with the car in your driveway. And that, that's when in 2012, in the middle of the year, we launched Lyft. Uh, we wanted to kind of change the paradigm of getting in someone else's car. Uh, we added background checks, driving record checks, and a pink mustache. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and that's how it got started. So I want to get to you in just a second, because I think that's 
you know, in some ways, like that was my personal introduction to Lyft. And I suspect for a lot of folks here, uh, like Paul. Uh, but Ben, I want to bring you in. Do you remember your first memories of hearing about uh, Zimride slash Lyft and what you thought about it then? Because obviously very, very different time than where we are today. Yeah. So when I first heard about it, I thought, actually, it's funny, exactly sort of what John said, that their model of, you know, anybody can drive and anybody can ride uh, was clearly way more scalable than uh, what was the Uber tagline? Anyone can be a everyone's <laughs> everyone's private driver. Everyone's a private driver. Yeah, anyone could be a baller kind of thing. That 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 was their whole ethos was, you know, how do you <laughs> it was kind of funny because it was like anyone can be elite uh, was sort of the idea, which is kind of a funny paradoxical thing. Um, but but Lyft just, you know, it it had a much more interesting model. And then, you know, we met John and Logan. It was such a great story um, about like. No, this actually works. People share their cars in Zimbabwe, um, of all places, uh, and we can just bring that to America, and it's going to work great. Was was such an awesome story. But you got to uh, important important fact is, Andreessen Horowitz. This is good for other entrepreneurs to hear. Andreessen Horowitz said no to us at least one, maybe two times before mm. you said yeah, yes. at least at least once, at least once. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that's right. That's right. And that's actually one. You know, one of the most important um, things we've learned in venture capital is when you make a mistake, don't double down and make the mistake again. <laughs> you know, don't, don't don't be so prideful that you don't realize uh, that you made a mistake and just pay more, um, which we're always happy to do. <laughs> Uh, 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 it's interesting, actually, John. Um, uh, even today, I think when you know, you know, sometimes when we have to turn down a founder, uh, I would actually write something like, "We make mistakes," and I would point to Lyft as an example of where you know the firm made a mistake and then corrected it, uh, you know, at a much higher price uh, later. Uh, um, okay, but you know, talk to us a little bit about that era, right? Because I think in some ways that is sort of the first introduction a lot of you know folks listening in in the Bay Area elsewhere had to live, which was the era of the pink mustache, the fist bump. How did you think of just how you were positioning, you know, a lift against Uber? Yeah, I mean, so like Ben said, uh, Uber had everyone's private driver. And right. it was all about this elite baller thing that I I did not like. I, I did not... Um, I guess is a nice way of putting it. Um, and so Lyft's tagline was your friend with a car. And and the kind of vision we had was way different than trying to make it easy for everyone to have this, this limo whenever they wanted. We, we really did and still do want to dramatically change city design and, and the way people get around. And we're still very early in that process. But um, so we they said, okay, let's focus on getting... Uh, a safe ride that will pick you up within three minutes. Um, and how do we get people to do something? It, we all take for granted this idea of ride sharing, but back then it was really weird. It was very different. It was not normal. And so I remember sitting in the car uh, with uh, one of my team members at the time, and she was sitting, she was pretending to be the driver. I would sit in the back seat. I would sit in the front seat. We would like say hello. It was kind of awkward. We we tried all these different ways of sitting together and the fist bump felt kind of unique and like it, it broke the ice because you, you, you obviously 
you know, in a car would, didn't do that normally. Uh, but it wasn't formal, like a handshake. Mm-hmm. Um, and it created this kind of, uh, you know, if you, if you know about Lyft, people would talk about it. Oh, people would see the pink mustache on the streets. What is that? Oh, it's, it's Lyft. And it created word of mouth virality. And then the fist bump just made you feel comfortable part of the movement. And, uh, we started suggesting people sit in the front seat to treat drivers with respect, mm-hmm. uh, and think about it like your friend with a car. And then, you know, eventually, uh, you know, people felt more comfortable sitting in the back at points, which we were fine with as well, uh, as long as they were respectful to the driver and it and just evolved from there. I, I totally remember that part, like, especially what you just said, John, on like, at that time, it was so revolutionary. I remember first hearing about Lyft, right? And I remember one of my coworkers being like, you know, there's this car with a pink mustache. And I was like, what? And she's like, yeah, it's like all around like San Francisco, and you have to get in and the driver is like, ma'am, I have to give you like a fist bump. Like it's a thing. <laughs> and uh, it wasn't a requirement. It was a, it was a suggestion. Yeah. So I think the first time <laughs> I got into one, the guy was like very somber and he was like, we need to fist bump. <laughs> and I was like, okay, sure. Like you do you. And we just did this thing. And it rem- I remember because I just thought it was so brilliant as a tactic to like get the word out. It just got people talking because you know, like all things considering ride sharing and just sitting, getting from one place to the other is not that exciting. It's not that fun, but somehow you just made this a really fun story to tell your friends and coworkers and get them excited about it. I thought that was really neat. Yeah, we we wanted to make a unique experience and we wanted it to kind of wake people up from, you know, staring down at their phones or uh, not interacting with people. We, we love, we had this early, even it was a Zimride ethos, like we wanted people to connect from different backgrounds, from uh, different politics, you know, people that had different tastes in tastes in music. And there's there's something incredibly powerful when you sit next to someone in a car, um, you're not staring at them. Right. And so there's there's you know, it when you stare directly into someone's eyes, there's uh, it could be intimidating or it could be uncomfortable. But when you're sitting next to someone, there's almost like a certain level of comfort, um, as long as the whole system is designed with, with safety as we did. Um, and, and that allowed for some really interesting conversations. Again, people from different backgrounds, from different beliefs talking. And I I think that to us is, is also part of our, our value system and, and mission is that we want people to interact in the real world. Um, and so that was part of the early design. It's just very cool. Yeah, and it was a big differentiator in the early days, interestingly, that the writers would sit in the front seat. Um, But over time, I don't know, COVID and and other things that kind of faded to the background over time. How how do you think about that now? Yeah, I think it's uh, one of our creative directors said it well. It's kind of like in the early days, we were very specific, like saying, hey, we we suggest that you fist bump. We suggest that you sit in the front seat. And then... He's like, now that should be more like the, you know, animal style menu at In-N-Out where it's a little more kind of like, <laughs> uh, there if, if you want it, but, but not something that that's up in your face. Um, yeah. and also, you know, when we designed it, we didn't know what, what the right thing was. We had our intuition and beliefs. And, and I think, um, we are still working on ways to create, uh, great human interaction when it's necessary. And then, you know, even if people want a quiet ride to make that easier on both the driver and rider as well. Um, so I think this brings me to a time frame, and I'm going to say roughly 2014 to 2016, or maybe a bit further on, 
where I think a lot of us as consumers, um, and this far predates you know, uh, my time in venture, uh, where we saw this period of intense competition um, between you and Uber. Uh, and it's kind of interesting because I think, you know, we see competition in so many industries, but in your case, it was so visible to consumers. Uh, how was it, you know, and of course, you know, you're offering still, uh, you know, you're probably still in the space, but how was it to kind of live through that era in such an intensely competitive environment with one, actually there are multiple other companies, but I think like, you know, Uber is probably, you know, uh, you know one of the more notable. How was it to live through that era? Because I'm sure a lot of founders listening to this, how are they walking, to, working through similar competitive situations as well? It was incredibly painful. <laughs> yeah, it was, I don't know if it was Ben or Ben's book described something like chewing on glass, uh, but, it, but it, was, it, was, it was very, very difficult. There were moments, I mean, mentally, I was not in a good place. I went, I went down. Um, there were moments where a lot of people and myself included, questioned whether whether we could survive. Just to like provide context to people, I woke up one day, I don't know, maybe like you said, 2014-ish, and Uber raises $3 billion. They We had five months of cash left. I don't think any private company had ever raised that kind of money for $3 billion. Wow. And we literally had five months left to live. The burn rate was, would allow us to be arrived for five months. Um, and uh, first time entrepreneur, uh, luckily I had my, my co-founder, Logan, uh, who, who also was first time, but, but we kind of did it together. Yeah. And everyone thought we were dead. Everyone thought the, the business would go under. Um, and so it just, just, it was extremely difficult. Ben, what did you think of yeah, that? Yeah, well, let me ask John a question because actually, that—that's you know how I got on the board was actually that. Yeah, like <laughs> um, save us. The answer please. to your question. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, it was more than that. Like it, it was interesting because what had happened. Um, I'll, I'll answer that part, but I have a question for John because th th this was a really interesting period in that. You know, around the firm, people were also panicking. I won't name names, <laughs> but there were a lot of people who were very worried about Lyft. And, um, you know, one of the things that I had, you know, remembered from being an entrepreneur and had, you know, I even wrote about it, I think, in, in Hard Thing About Hard Things is, you know, you either know a lot about a company or you know nothing. You don't know a little bit about a company. That's never the case, you know, particularly when it comes to investing. And so all these people had all these fucking theories about Lyft in the office, but, you know, they hadn't even really talked to John or, or to Logan. And so I said, look, rather than I don't want to have this conversation anymore because I don't know anything and you guys don't know anything. So I'm going to go see him and like I'll go on the board and then I'll know what's going on and then I can have a conversation. But I'm not going to have a conversation like where I don't know what's happening. And so that's actually how we got started working together because – and I, I can say, you know, when I sat down with him, it's funny because Logan, if you know him really well, when he's extremely stressed, it really affects his breathing when he talks. <laughs> and it was like he was suffocating when I was talking to him. And I was like, oh, fuck, these guys are under a lot of stress. Um, but they also, you know, there was a lot to like about what they had built. And customers still loved Lyft, you know, despite everything that Uber was doing to the company, um, the, the actual customers still 
would prefer to go and lift all things being equal. So that was, you know, that was a lot to build on. And, um, you know, and like they uh, obviously did quite an amazing job and have a super valuable company uh, today. But that that was kind of the scenario. But I have a, I have a question for John around this because I always kind of wondered from your perspective what this was because you guys started out as the ultimate uh, abundance mentality kind of company. You were like, I can share my car was kind of the thesis of it. You come from hospitality, Mikasa Sukasa. Like everything about your whole culture was like we share. Um, this is there's plenty for everyone. And then the way, like Sri Ram, you say Uber competed with them, but they didn't compete with them the way normal, the the way we normally think about competition, where like somebody tries to build a better product than you, or somebody tries to uh, create a better experience. They literally competed through scarcity, and their whole strategy was based on scarcity of money. So what Uber tried to do was outraise Lyft, number one, then slash prices to make uh, it hard for Lyft to stay in business. Then three, and this was probably the most insidious part, uh, was they went to every investor in Silicon Valley and, you know, kind of encourage them and threaten them not to invest in Lyft, lest they'll not only never be allowed to invest in Uber, but never be allowed to invest in any good benchmark company. Um, and Bill Gurley called many investors and told him this. And also with banks, um, if you worked with Lyft, you could never work with any benchmark company or with Uber. So it was this, whole, the whole strategy was to cut off Lyft's money supply. Um, and that's how Uber was going to win, not by like being better, but by literally um, destroying Lyft. So it was that kind of competition, um, not the kind of competition you're used to. And then, um, so that my question for John, sorry for this long explanation, but it's really important to understand the context, is John, like, how did that um, change you as a kind of person and as an entrepreneur, both for the better and both for the worse? Because, I mean, you guys were such, like, like it was just like an amazing kind of lovely type company where like there was enough for, and then all of a sudden you're thrown into this, you know, wood chipper, uh, yeah. with Uber and like, in retrospectively, how did you change? I had to grow up a lot. Um, and, and it was, you know, I, I always thought the best in people, which was very, I think naive and <clears throat> still I always like, I think most people are good people, so I haven't I haven't lost all that. But I, but I've also yeah. seen kind of the dark side of people and the dark side of organizations. Um, and so I think it was a very fast wake up call. Um, and like I said, it was very painful. I had I had a, a pretty good time period where I was depressed uh, and and couldn't kind of figure out be, because I think it was exactly what you just pinpointed, which is like I had built my worldview on. Uh, a little bit more idyllic people being good people and that that is by, by doing that uh, you get ahead. Um, and I was seeing the opposite happening. And so it was, it was while also trying to keep everything afloat and, and raise billions of dollars. Also, there was a fourth point. You raised three points about the, about the money. They also went into <laughs> a regulator and asked the regulator to, to shut us down because they didn't start doing <laughs> They didn't start doing UberX until yes. after 
until after we had been doing it for at least uh, been doing peer to peer rides for at least six months. So it was like coming in from all corners and um, they're very talented at these tactics. Um, yeah. So the, I guess, it, yeah, I had to grow up really quickly and it was painful, uh, mostly mentally uh, painful. Yeah, no, it was really, I, I would say, impressive to watch. And then, you know, I think the, the, the great benefit, you know, from my point of view is you and Logan just became much better entrepreneurs in that, um, you know, you way upgraded the talent of the company. Um, you, you know, you, yeah, the you, competition, you just it was moved. the best, it was the best education I could have ever gotten. Just like having to compete with those, my hands tied behind yeah. my back. And the speed of execution and so forth. And then I can also, I also agree with like the level of paranoia that you guys took on because I, I remember having conversations with Logan about board meetings and it was clear that he was a little paranoid of me. And I'd be like, Logan, I'm actually telling you this part. This isn't for the board. I'd give a fuck. I'll support whatever you want to do. But like, I'm just kind of trying to give you my perspective on it and he'd be go okay i got it but yeah we had reason, <laughs> but otherwise we had, like that. we had reason to believe we were being spied on um i mean yeah. i was wow. i was yeah. like uh because <laughs> you were because <laughs> we were wait, 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 could you okay t- could you talk about that because i think that's probably raising a few bunch of eyebrows okay so uh one it's come out you know it's come out recently or in the last few years that they had a operation internally, I think with former CIA agents, uh, doing research on competition. Um, competitive research is not, you know, crazy. Uh, but again, the, the extent to which this, this extended, uh, we believe was not normal. Um, I would, as Ben mentioned, I would go around to investors and I had multiple investors call me and say, Hey, did you, did you tell anyone that you were meeting with us? I said, no, why? And they said, well, Someone from Uber called us uh, literally like the day after you came and, and offered us a discount on their round as long as we didn't invest in Lyft. And they sent us an, <laughs> they sent us an NDA. And in the NDA, it says that if, if we sign the NDA, that we, we can't ever look at any Lyft materials or invest in Lyft. Um, and so the, it was the timing of like, I would do a visit and then like the call would go in. Now they were like blanketing like multiple calls, but there were multiple times where it would have been really hard to, to believe that they nailed the timing that well. Um, wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's why it was so. And I sound, maybe I sound <laughs> paranoid or crazy, but like, again, things have come out later that, that I think you know, pretty much say that's what happening. That's what was uh, happening. You know, well, I think it's it's probably the first time, you know, we saw such a public, I think I love Ben's articulation of uh, uh, competition focused on scarcity, but using capital as a moat and, you know, just very different tactics than we used to. I want to come to 2017 and you have the Trump administration, you have Trump's, uh, you know, you know, Muslim country ban, Talk to us about that because that feels like such a defining incident for uh, you know Lyft and Uber's history. I mean, you folks made a donation to the ACLU. Talk to us about those few weeks. Sure. I mean, uh, there was a lot going on politically, uh, and then specific to to that ban, um, we were asked for a statement 
and and Logan, my co-founder, and I talked about like a statement that feels really weak right now. Um, what could we do to take an action? And at that time, not many people were sticking their neck out with the, the Trump administration disagreeing because they were known to be vindictive. Um, and But we felt like this was really against our value system. It impacted team members. It impacted drivers, riders. Uh, and so we wanted to do more than just make a statement. We wanted to take an action and we wanted to maybe normalize uh, that when something goes against uh, your values so distinctly that that a company can take an action and normalize it in that environment of that the, the last administration. And so we decided to do that. We we asked uh, we asked the board, and then the email went off <laughs> before everyone responded. But um, but it uh, it was the right thing to do, and actually the board all supported it. Um, and so uh, that that's what went down that that week. And I think uh, leading from there to where we are today, John, talk to us about, you know, what's going on with Texas. You know, we've been seeing a lot of articles, like a Twitter account, you know, just coverage there. But what are, what is Lyft doing with respect to Texas today with protecting drivers? Can you talk about that? Yeah. Yeah, sure. So, so there was uh, a new law passed in Texas um, that, uh, I believe it's SB8, and uh, basically, uh, takes away a woman's right to choose, uh, and implicates anyone who could have quote, like abated or abetted in, uh, in, in bringing that, that woman to a healthcare clinic. Mm -hmm. Um, and it just feels really wrong, uh, on, on multiple levels, um, and it implicated our community. Um, and so number one, the, the action, the first action that we took is we let uh, the community know that we're, we're against this law and that drivers, uh, any legal costs or damages uh, related to this would be 100% covered by us. We don't want drivers having to ask riders where we're going. We don't want riders to worry uh, that they're gonna get canceled on by a driver. Um, it goes against just basic principles of privacy. Um, and so we, we announced that. And at the same time, uh, we made a million dollar donation to Planned Parenthood, uh, mm -hmm. because we also believe women should have the right to choose, uh, and that this, this law goes, goes way too far on, on way too many levels. I, I, you know, I think for me, it's like, it's interesting because companies kind of choose to either take a stance or kind of like go with. Uh, what is the norm or not say anything. For Lyft, I think, you know, as Shwaram talked about 2017, it's kind of been this this cultural thread that you have on like being able to take a stance or being able to speak out, being able to like have a voice, so to speak. Uh, what what drives that with the company? Like what part of the culture like, drives that as such uh, to just, you know, be able to have an opinion or voice on things. I mean, our, our mission is improve people's lives with the world's best transportation. And it's not just like build the world's best transportation. Like the first part matters, uh, even more. It's like, we're, we're, it's, it's trite and it's often said, but we actually want things to get better, uh, for the most, uh, for the largest audience possible. And right. we've also, you know, been in a very regulated industry. We've had to learn about how policy is made. We've had to learn about how you can change policy. I mean, when we started, 
Um, we, we coined the term TNC, Transportation Network Company. We had to create the first regulations and then pass them in 50 states. Um, and so I think that's also something that's not, you know, mm-hmm. talked about a lot, but something that's a huge part of our business has been like understanding making laws that that protect public safety and, and also allow new business models to, to come up. Um, and so with that, you know, with that big platform and, and, and that skill set we've learned, we want to continue to use that for good when when there are big opportunities where we think people are being too silent on something too important. That's great. This is actually a good, this is actually a good segue because, um, you know, for the last few years, I think you folks have been very involved in worker classification, Prop 22. Uh, just curious to hear about how you think about getting involved. I think you just touched on this on the legal regulatory side. It's not something a lot of companies have to do. And second, just how you think about just the future of work in the gig economy, because you folks are obviously out there, you know, leading the charge on this. Yeah. So, on, um, you know, again, for context, when we came into this, it was really centered around like wanting to create this this better city infrastructure and, and better transportation. Um, and within a few years, we had millions of people that had worked on the platform. In fact, like, you know, before COVID, it was, I think, over 1% of the U.S. workforce earned money, excuse me, on Lyft. And so we didn't come into it with, with the idea that we could create so much uh, income opportunities and, and new types of jobs for people. But what we found out is that this type, the ability to turn on and off the app, it's like, a, it was like an ATM for people. It's like if it was a single parent and they couldn't do hold a nine to five, or if they were someone who wanted to be an actor or actress and they couldn't hold a nine to five, or they wanted to pursue their passion and they wanted to fill in some gaps or, or have some extra supplementary income, that flexibility became super powerful for people. Um, at the same time, the safety nets that we have in this country have been tied mostly to employment. So I remember going to our general counsel uh, in, the, in the early years and saying, you know, can we add healthcare benefits um, and have them scale with how much you drive? And, and she said, you, you wouldn't be able to do that without then everyone likely being classified as an employee. So you'd have to create a new category. And uh, just like we had to do so in transportation, we're, we're now trying to do the same where you can have both flexibility to work with multiple apps whenever you want, minimum hours, maximum hours, uh, have protections like Prop 22 in California where there's uh, income earning protection on an income uh, uh, guarantee at 1.2 times minimum wage as well as healthcare benefits. Um, but but. Uh, changing this type of legislation is is going to take another another year or two. Um, okay, I want to get to the future of Lyft and peer to peer ride share, all of it in just a sec. But Ben, before we move to the future, uh, you know, I'm curious, how much has your experience with Lyft, watching them compete? At, you know, I think one time Uber was 30 times the size of Lyft. You know, <laughs> much better capitalized. How much has that changed either your or the firm sort of like? take on what makes a great company, how to support a great company? How much has it changed your perspective? Well, I, I, you know, I think I kind of think of it as a reminder of, you know, what we either already knew or should have already known in that, you know, look, these things are very hard to build and they're always long odds. Now, 
lived at one point, at least in kind of Silicon Valley, kind of intelligentsia was the longest of odds um, because everybody, I think John's right. Like, I mean, conventional wisdom in Silicon Valley was like it was a winner take all market and um, Uber was the winner and like Lyft was dead and Uber was telling everybody that. So, you know, it was a good meme on top of all that. Uh, but, you know, like the truth is like, there's always, <laughs> you know, the, there's always a path because it is a, you know, like it's a big wide world out there. There's always a path to success. And, you know, a, a Andy Ratcliffe a long time, a long time ago said to me, he said, Ben, you know, we invest in the size of the opportunity and the quality of the team and a bad market always beats a good team. And I said, well, Andy, why do you ever invest in the team then? He said, well, because a great team can sometimes kind of navigate you from a bad market to a better one. And I think that, you know, in the Lyft case, it wasn't a it was it was a great market um, and a very kind of difficult competitive situation. And but we had a great team and, you know, the great team can get you out of that. And they did. And so. And look, I also think that, um, you know, the other big lesson about it is, you know, culture matters and who the company is kind of reflects through the brand. And the thing, you know, one of the things that really saved Lyft um, was just that, that the writers and the drivers agreed with the company about what the brand meant. Um, and what the promise of being, you know, associated with Lyft was. And so even in the most horrible, difficult times when Lyft had, was going to go bank, you know, much closer to bankruptcy, had higher prices, all these things, they were able to survive because they had an actual community. It wasn't just, um, you know, people, you know, driving or, or, you know, or, or whatever the teamsters say about it. Um, it was a real community and, and, and people were honored and happy to be part of it. Um, I, I love that. Uh, and, and John, I, I, I can testify to, we still use uh, the Lyft example when we talk to founders. Okay. I want to talk about, you know, the last couple of years, um, you know, you folks go public um, and, you know, uh, and, and then like all of a sudden, uh, there is a global pandemic which winds up happening. Talk to us about just how it has been to lead a company which is in the business of transporting people from point A to point B when over a year and a half and people are not doing that as much. And maybe maybe let's start off by asking you a question I think a lot of people have, which is why are Lyfts and Ubers and everything else so expensive right now? Sure. Um, so... Uh, for that specifically, it's because the market marketplace is imbalanced because, and it happened the reverse at the start of the pandemic, um, where, uh, we had so many drivers and no riders cause they didn't want right. to go out. They wanted to stay home. And, and, and so the prices went, went down and, and then drivers left when that happened. And then now, uh, there's so many people that want to go out and do things and it takes a few months to, to get drivers back on the platform uh, and, and that's, what's happening. It's a marketplace imbalance. It's getting better. It's, it's already, uh, improved. Uh, it might not feel like it, uh, on certain specific rides, but as a whole, it has materially improved over the last, uh, two months. And I expect over the next quarter, uh, and, and beyond that it will, will fully resolve. Um, so it's just a marketplace imbalance, but back to your original question about how it, how it felt, I guess, for the business, 
after the training we went through competitively, it, it's, you know, we say like throw anything at us, uh, and, and you won't, won't throw us off. We, we didn't, we didn't think a pandemic was coming our way that would cut at one point rides down by 70%. So we're, we're like, wow. Oh my gosh, we just got through this hardest period. You know, we, we finally, we got out to go public before the competition. Um, we, we, we had raised $5 billion privately after the odds were so stacked against us. And, uh, now we just need to march towards profitability. And then all of a sudden there's a, and we're making really good progress. We're quarters away. And then a pandemic cuts our rides down by 70%. Um, and so mentally we had been trained. I, I, I didn't like go, go down like I had before, but, um, and, and we were, you know, in a great fortunate position, uh, having cash in the bank, but it was really hard. I mean, the business again, got cut by 70%. We had to make some really hard decisions about our team size, uh, did, uh, a round of layoffs, uh, lost 17% of the team. Um, and, uh, but, but then we kind of used the opportunity to, to kind of get stronger and smarter about how we were running the business. Uh, and we just announced our last quarter that, that we had hit, uh, adjusted uh, profitability for the first time ever before the competition, uh, in light of the pandemic. So, uh, I think Yay! it made us uh, stronger. <laughs> it made yeah, us that stronger, broke a lot of predictions. Tough. Yeah. There was many yeah. people who said that that would never happen. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, but actually, but I'm curious, like, do you think that uh, in some ways, like, you know, uh, John and Logan and the team having been through the last five years of, you know, just some of the craziest competition ever, but in some ways, you know, they were much prepared to handle the pandemic than maybe other founders and CEOs who haven't gone through that crucible? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it enabled them to kind of make decisions quicker and more sharply and, you know, no, um, you know, and, and look, the, the miracle when the pandemic hit for Lyft was, um, the company had a giant amount of money in the bank, which it had never had before. So it, it made that kind of period a little bit calmer from, for them also. Um, but yeah, like there's no question. I mean, I, I think, there's nothing you could throw at Lyft from a new law to a pandemic to, you know, Jeff Bezos entering this space that that's going to knock them off their uh, off their game. I, 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 I like that. I, I don't think Bezos is entering this space, just maybe space. Um, so uh, sorry, folks, I have to. I'm here all week. Um, so, so, John, OK, so. Uh, all right. So you've survived. Well, all, you know, hopefully the pandemic is maybe close to the end, but you can never tell. Uh, we do live in California. Um, looking to the future, uh, you know, there's kind of a bunch of questions about just the future of Lyft that I want to kind of ask. And the first one is about autonomous driving. So you folks have been involved for several years. Uh, you know, talk to us about, A, when do you think, you know, we'll be in a self-driving car uh, in the streets of San Francisco, at least, and what is it going to uh, take to get there? Sure. Uh it, I would say it's kind of like if your kids ask you, are, are we, or as a kid, when you ask, are you there yet? And you say, yeah, in 20 minutes, but you say that every 20 minutes. So I'm going to say in three years, um, within three years. Uh, but I actually think this time that's correct. Um, it's it's going to take, I mean, now there is 
five, six very well-funded efforts underway, Mm -hmm. uh, making, you know, incremental progress. It's that last, as everyone says, it's the last 1% that is incredibly hard and you can't have something that doesn't work 1% of the time when, uh, when it's around safety. And so, uh, you know, you're already seeing certain companies, uh, able to, to pull the driver and do so safely, uh, in Arizona. Um, and, and so I think in the next three years it'll, it'll happen, but it's not going to happen for all rides. So I think people, you know, think all of a sudden all, all cars and all rides can be AVs, but I think the, the way it's more likely to happen is 1% of trips are done in an autonomous vehicle and can be done safely then 2%, then 10%, then 20%, but you'll still need that other 80% and it decreases over time, but it will take, but you still need those, that other 80% uh, as lift rides with drivers. Um, and so as the whole market expands, as transportation as a service expands, I still think we're going to need more and more drivers on the platform. You know, maybe in a, a decade or two, you know, you'll start seeing uh, a line cross where AVs are, are more the case than, than non-AVs, but it's going to take some time. What, what do you think has taken so long? I mean, I think we spoke about this, you alluded to some of the, you know, you, it has to work 100% of the time and not 99% of the time. Like, what do you think was the cost of people having, I mean, I think seven years ago, if you'd asked me, I would have predicted by 2021, we would already be there. But like, what do you think has taken so long? <sighs> it's, it's, it's something that you can't, you can't, you know, you can't ship a device and have a bug. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is like people driving around and people walking around. Um, and so it's just the, the bar for excellence, the bar for safety. Uh, and the task we're asking, you know, this machine to do is, is quite complex and, and, you know, particularly with all the, the crazy things that can happen. And, you know, you mentioned San Francisco, so the streets of San Francisco, um, it has to be able to predict, uh, anything thrown in its way, literally and figuratively. Um, so it's just, you know, in some ways it's taken a really long time. I, I think the second it starts happening and everyone gets comfortable with it, they'll be like, how did this happen so quickly? And so I, I think it's a bit of perspective as well. The, the other theme, which I know you're passionate about is a move from the idea of owning cars and an ownership model to having essentially transportation as a service. I was looking at a study the other day about how young people these days have essentially, uh, you know, given up on car ownership uh, in a way, you know, my parents hadn't. So curious kind of get your thoughts about how the world is headed to there and how would we think about car ownership, say, in five to seven years from now? Yeah, I think it'll be uh, financially irresponsible or a, a bad decision uh, mm. to, to do, uh, you know, outright car ownership. Uh, but I think people will want to run their cars on a network. Um, because if you think about even car ownership, um, let's say that even in, in five, 10 years, if you want to own a car, you're going to, as I mentioned, want to run it on a network. Because right now you have the second highest household expense in the U.S., about $9,000 every year. People don't think about it. But the only thing Americans spend more money on is the house. And they spend $9,000 a year on something they use 4% of the time. And they have to deal with 10 companies who charge them retail rates for fuel, for maintenance, for insurance, et cetera, deal with the DMV, et cetera. And so if we can say, hey, we'll do all of that for you, you can own you know, the car outright if that's what you want to do, or you can use our, vari- you know, our all of our different services. But let us take 
down the cost. I think we can drop, you know, $2,000 off that $9,000 by negotiating on behalf of tens of millions of users instead of you one-on-one -on -one with each of those separate companies. And let's remove all the hassle and, and make transportation a much more enjoyable experience. That's, that's our vision for like kind of the consumer value we can drive, both the cost savings uh, and a much more enjoyable experience. Um, so I'm a big fan of trying to draw through lines between people's kind of upbringing and the companies they build and the future. So you, you know, uh, come from a background of hospitality and, uh, you know, I'm curious, right? You know, a line from that, I think I can so evidently see, you know, the origin of Lyft, you know, the, you know, making people comfortable when they get into a car, uh, thinking a bit broader, you know, talk to us about cities. Uh, I, live, I know this is coming to you live from the city of San Francisco, which is, you know, they've gone through a very tricky, interesting time over the last couple of years, as has been discussed widely on Clubhouse and on our show in the past. But I'm just curious about how you see the future of cities, both, you know, ours uh, in SF and others, just given, you know, one, not just your position in Lyft, but also everything that you've you know, learned over the last 10, 15 years around hospitality. Yeah. Again, like what I, I think the city is the most exciting and important hospitality experience, but again, it's not thought of that way. It's not thought of as a product built for people um, enough. And so, I mean, there are amazing city planners and designers out there that I think deserve more, more attention and <clears throat> more resources. Um, but if you go from like uh, my, my wife's from Spain. So if I go to Spain and I see a city that was built before the car and I see all the, activity in the streets, the plazas, uh, people uh, eating out happens to be good weather, um, kids playing next to where their parents are drinking a beer. Um, these things don't happen here in the United States in certain cities that were built after the automobile. It, I can't have my kids, you know, they might, there, there's traffic, there's cars, it's unsafe, it's higher stress. Um, and so there's a huge opportunity if we rethink our cities um, that in a way that doesn't necessitate uh, car access and ownership to everywhere. Think about all the parking spots. If if everyone was using transportation as a service uh, and was being dropped off by a, a lift or an autonomous vehicle, we wouldn't need all this street parking. Think of what you can do with that street parking. You can create uh, plazas and places for people to safely get together, communicate, hopefully uh, talk about their, their differences more than than tweet about them. Um, and, and that's something I'm, I'm super excited about. And, and that's kind of what, what's really driving me to focus on transportation, because I think, I think that's currently in the way. So let's talk about SF a little bit, you know, because in some ways, you know, I, I think of Lyft as a very San Francisco company. Um, if you could wave a magic wand um, and, uh, you know, somewhat redesign San Francisco in a way, what would you do? I would remove all the on-street parking. I would make protected bike lanes. I would close uh, many streets down altogether and make them plazas. Um, you know, I would uh, have pickup and drop-off points uh, for for lifts uh, and other vehicles. Uh, and I would invest tax uh, revenue into uh, the public transportation that that already exists. I love that. Um, I don't think I, I can think of a better note to uh, end on. So this was such a pleasure, John. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you.